We come to this text, uh, friends, certainly mindful of what we said uh, this morning, and that is that the gospel writers are keen to set before us a picture of what Christ accomplished in his earthly ministry for the purpose of showing us the Christ who still ministers today, to acquaint us with the living Christ who still is to be heard in the church today. But it's also true that the Gospels present to us a primer, a guide, not only for us to know the Christ who is there, but also for us to respond aright to his ministry. And this evening, the text that we take up is very much a guide of that latter kind, a guide to show us what is a true response to faith contrasted with with that which is really a work of unbelief. In other words, what you have here is a picture of feigned faith and true, a picture of a right response to Christ and the false. But in order for us to see this, I want to remind you just where we are in the general timeline of Christ's ministry. We are nine months after the feast day, after the cleansing of the temple. Nine months have elapsed. And we are, of course, just three days after Christ has left Judea, and two days, of course, after he began his ministry in Samaria. And after that time, we're told that Christ moved from Samaria back into Galilee. And the text that we read is quite straightforward. It's a very, very direct and very simple historical analysis. You have, first of all, in verses 43 to 46, the occasion of the miracle that we're about to encounter. Again, verses 43 and following, we find Christ leaving Samaria after a two-day ministry, moving north, not moving to Nazareth, that part of his country of his rearing, but moving instead to Cana. And then in Cana, we were told that he encounters the very selfsame people, a contingent of that selfsame congregation he met with in Jerusalem nine months beforehand. And then we're told in that congregation of people, there is a Galilean ruler, a centurion, a nobleman. Uh, The Greek bears out that he was simply a man of high political position. And this man comes to Christ with a very simple request that the Lord would visit his son, who is in Capernaum, and would heal him. To which Christ says to the man directly, Except ye see signs and wonders ye will not believe. This rebuke is followed by another earnest cry by the man. Sir, come and heal my son. And then we're told from verses 51 to 54, after Christ has said that his son lives, that in point of fact, Christ did heal the child. Verses 51 to 54 read something like a very standard report of the miracle, showing us the simple history and confirmation of Christ's work. But I want you to notice something, friend, if you... Look at these otherwise very straightforward verses. In their broader context in John's Gospel, you have something more than a simple miracle report. You do have, of course, the report, the authentic authentic record of, of Christ's miraculous work. Of course you have that. But in its broader context, you do have something more. What do I mean? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, that 
if you're keeping these texts with the verses that immediately precede, you'll notice that there's a stark contrast in our text. It's the contrast between Nazareth and Sychar. In Sychar, you remember that the Samaritans were urging Christ to tarry with them. But then John, the the inspired historian, comes to us and tells us in verse 44 that the Son of God knows that in Nazareth, the place of his rearing, he has no such welcome. The Samaritans who had rejected the Lord and his proper worship, so much of his word, they were more willing to entertain and welcome the Son of God than Nazareth that had been privileged with so much of his presence before. The contrast couldn't be starker. One is urging the Son of God to tarry. The other one has no interest, would not know him at all. The second element of this text in broader context is that that you have in the request of the nobleman. We'll see in a moment, friend, that this is not just the request of the nobleman, this petition for the healing of his son. It's actually a request, really, that belongs to all of the Galileans there in Christ's audience. But I want you to notice that, first of all, and this should remind us of what has gone before in John's Gospel, that there is a seeming faith in the request. In other words, these ones go to Christ asking for healing, and evidently there's some plausibility behind the request. In other words, they go to Christ expecting that perhaps he might. And John the Evangelist tells us that 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 expectation arises because of what they themselves witnessed in Jerusalem. But it's a seeming faith, and the Evangelist makes that point very clear. He doesn't just tell us that there were Galileans there. He tells us that these were part of that congregation that are described for us at the end of John chapter 2. It might be helpful for you to remind yourself of what there the inspired historian tells us of that group of people. He says there that many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Again, In the original, the idea is Jesus did not receive their testimony. They profess some faith in him, but Jesus who knows the hearts of men, he knows that their faith is but a feigned faith. It's strikingly what John the Evangelist does then in John 4 is he tells us that the people in Galilee here who are asking for this miracle are the self-same people who had made some profession of faith before, but a profession which Jesus saw through, a feigned faith. But I want you to notice a third element in its broader context that's so very important to our passage. Not only is there a contrast between Sychar and Nazareth, a right reception of Christ and a false, and not only is there that distinction between a seeming profession of faith and a true, But you have here a very clear picture given to us of true faith and a picture of its object. What do I mean by that? I want you to notice how this history is provided for us. The nobleman who goes to Christ and petitions for the healing of his son. Christ responds initially with rebuke. Except ye see signs and wonders ye will not believe. But how does this self-same man leave Christ? 
after Christ tells him his son lives. It's striking what the evangelist says. He says, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. The evangelist could have simply said that the man went home. But it's important for us and for the church to know, according to the Spirit of God, that the man went away believing and believing in the spoken word of Christ. What's striking is, if we're reading this in context, you recognize that this has a lot in common with how the Sicarians are described in the text we took up this morning, who believed because of his own word. It has a lot in common with the woman of Samaria initially, who saw no miracle but believed because of the word of Christ. The object of her faith was the word. And so, friend, what you have here is a text, like all that has gone before, that emphasizes a true reception of Christ as opposed to false. A text that shows us that Christ's word is the object of saving faith. This is a miracle report, but in its broadest context and held together with all that's gone before, it certainly illustrates that it is the word of Christ that is the true object of saving faith. I want us to see this as the text itself presents us to us. I want us to see, first of all, the feigned faiths that are in view here. And we see that in two ways, because Christ issues two rebukes. Two rebukes to two different kinds of false faith. The first rebuke is given to us in verse 44, where Christ says, A prophet hath no honor in his own country. And obviously here the Lord is speaking of Nazareth, because he goes into Galilee, but he goes into Cana, not to the place of his rearing. And what he says here very pointedly is that in Nazareth, all that he finds there is contempt for his person. That's remarkable for two reasons, isn't it? It's remarkable, first of all, because it's a causeless contempt. Friend, certainly other ministers of the gospel, they could go to their hometown and they could find others that would say of them, well, we know, we know him in his childhood, perhaps. We've seen him as a foolish man before. And so they heap contempt upon his name. But none could say that of Christ. No, friend, they knew the one who was always holy, harmless, and undefiled. Their contempt was utterly causeless. And yet he had no honor among them. But the second reason why this contempt is so striking is because, of course, of the people themselves. These were Nazarenes. The New Testament bears out that this was a Jewish village. And moreover, as you read from Luke 2, the caravan that was going back from Jerusalem, they were going back with Joseph and Mary to Nazareth, which means that this village was predominantly not only a group of ethnically Jewish people, but of people apparently devout. They would go down for the feast days as commanded three times in the ecclesiastical year. They would go down and worship God. They, they profess the name of Jehovah. And yet when the Son of God is in their midst, they have no time for Him. They profess to be God's people. And externally they are, but internally they have nothing but contempt. 
for Jehovah incarnate. Surely, friend, that's remarkable. Surely that should give us some pause, because here you have a people who are most acquainted with the Son of God in earthly terms, but who are most alienated from Him in their affections, who had some name to worship God, but had no time for the Son of God in their midst. I think we could quickly overlook that fact. But it's right there in the text. He had no honor in his own country. They professed to be the people of God. They were apparently practicing. Apparently they had professed some waiting for the Messiah. And yet when they saw him, they saw no beauty that they should desire him. Isaiah 53. Friend, the false faith that's in view here is, it's not something that's restricted to the first century. There are many who profess Christ, but who actually despise him. You know, that was the case even in the first century. Even the apostles faced the same thing. This kind of contempt is evinced, as there are those who are barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's evident whenever there are people who profess Christ, but deny the Lord that bought them. Both of those texts taken from Second Peter. It's evident, friend, in a society that wants to talk much about Christ but has no interest in his claims. They want to talk about Christ and Christianity insofar as it gives them some kind of standing, gives them some kind of name. But as soon as, as, soon as they begin to reflect on the claims of this Christ, as soon as they reflect on himself, Friend, you'll find that Nazarenes, well, Nazarenes are still well and alive in the 21st century. They're still professing Christians, professing worshipers of Jehovah, who would heap Christ, who would heap upon Christ contempt. They desire Christ, but without his claims. Friend, there's a challenge in that for you and for me as well. They had all of the familiarity with Christ. All the familiarity with the word of God that should have been sufficient for them. But it did them no good. B.B. Warfield, speaking principally to those who are training for the ministry, said this. He says, the great danger of the theological student lies precisely in his constant contact with divine things. They may come to seem common to him because they are customary. It is your great danger, but it is your great danger only because of your great privilege. Friend, it should be a watchword among us um, to make sure that we do not make divine things common in our own hearts. The Nazarenes eventually, without cause, came even to the point where Christ was contemptible to them. May it be that as we are so privileged to be such in such frequent contact with divine things, even with the Son of God, that such would not be found among us. And so the first feigned faith is that of contempt. They profess Christ, but inwardly they have nothing but contempt for his person. 
The second kind of feigned faith is given to us in verse 48, where you find another rebuke from Christ. It's those words, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now, in one sense, friend, I suppose that rebuke is somewhat curious to us, especially when we consider the purpose of the miraculous in the ministry of Christ. Uh, To give an example of Luke 5, you remember that there, speaking to the paralyzed man, Christ says to the crowd, he says, that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise. In other words, Christ is saying the purpose of his miracles are to reinforce the authenticity, the veracity of his preaching ministry. And so one could look at this rebuke in verse 48 and and raise questions. Why is this a rebuke? If, If the purpose of the miraculous was to confirm faith in Christ's preaching, why the rebuke here? There are two reasons for that. The first reason is what you are given to, was given to us by the evangelist. He tells us who are in the audience. These were the Galileans, those who received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. And then he goes on to tell us that these are the same ones who were there at Cana. Or at least these were Canaanites in one sense. The rebuke is tendered unto them because they already had sufficient witness. They already had the evidence that they ought to have required. And John, the evangelist, is very keen to point that out to us. I want you to notice, secondly, friend, that that rebuke, the pronoun there is is not singular. Though Christ turns to the centurion, he doesn't turn to him only. Except ye, that is you all, except you all, See, signs and wonders, you will not believe. And friend, the point of that is is really straightforward. He's saying you are a group of people who are incredulous. In other words, you never go to the point where you leave the sign to go and believe upon the word. No, you only dwell on that which is sensible. Only that which is visible. You never go as you ought from the miracle to the word. You are constantly incredulous. A friend, I want you to notice that this rebuke then really highlights for us the distinction between the Galileans in our text and the Sicarians in the text we took up this morning. What miracle did Christ perform in Samaria? What miracle did the woman of Samaria see? And yet they believed. Now, these ones who have already seen his miracles, have already seen and, and, and sensibly have some, had, had some experience of the authenticity of his ministry, they will not believe. These ones know nothing of what it is to hope in his word, to cast oneself upon his word, even whenever they have more than sufficient confirmation to do so. You know, friend, that too is is a false faith that is well and alive in the 21st century. There are those who would have religious experiences first and then faith. Who would have some kind of experiential confirmation of the veracity of the gospel or of the gospel's offers before they believe. And friend, what this text shows us is that is nothing but a Galilean faith. A faith that will never 
really repose upon the word of God itself, but will always wait for signs and wonders. No, the order that Christ has set before us is very straightforward. One must exercise faith in his word. And that brings us, secondly, to our second main point, and that is, what is true faith? A picture of the faithful, and we close with this. In verse 49, after receiving the rebuke from Christ that he does in the 48th verse, the man says, Sir, come down ere my child die. Now there's three things that are notable in this man. First of all, I want you to notice that this is a rebuked man. Though the rebuke is tendered in the plural and it's so tendered to all in the audience at the time, the text is quite clear. Christ says these words to him. In other words, the rebuke is to him, though it's intended for others. And yet the man persists. I think we could quickly overlook that, but we would be wrong to do so. He has simply now been rebuked by Christ. His faith found wanting. And yet, yet he goes, he remains rather, at Christ's side. Sir, come, ere my child die. And so, friend, that's the second point. Though rebuked, he persists. The third thing that's remarkable in this text is that he separates himself immediately from those who had been rebuked with himself in the previous verse. Because he goes believing on the word. John, again, the inspired historian, is very keen to remind us of that fact. He didn't see his son revived. He saw no sign, no wonder that, that would have confirmed, the, certainly would not have confirmed the faith, but would have been ratifying the requests of the Galileans at the time. He received none of that. No, he goes, says John the evangelist, simply believing on the word of Christ. He's no longer than under the rebuke of verse 48. This is a man who has been brought from a false faith to a true. What you see in this man is an example of the fact that true faith rests upon Christ's word as its object. And I can go even a step further, friend, as you look at this man and you see him as, as, as such an example, you'll notice that there's humility in this kind of faith. He takes the rebuke that is given to him by Christ, though the man, you remember, is, is very clearly a man of high ranking in the political spectrum in Galilee. He takes the rebuke. And not only does he take the rebuke, but he doesn't despair as he, as he takes it. He receives the correction. All of that, friend, speaks of the man's humility. All of that speaks of an inward work of grace leading him to lay hold of that word and lodging his faith upon it. I want you to notice as well, friend, that there's a persistency in this faith that could quickly be overlooked. If, indeed, this is the Son of God, the second person of the all-glorious and adorable Trinity, then, friend, you recognize that this is the one who is God of God, light of light, and so the God of providence. The God who had controlled even the ailment of his son. And yet the man goes to the Son of God and asks for healing. 
providences do not buffet his faith here. He prevails even there. And then, friend, after he goes to the Son of God, he meets with rebuke, and he persists still. Even Christ's apparent frowning countenance, it doesn't take him from his errand. He goes to Christ still. And then, friend, thirdly and finally, you see that this man went away a believer long before he had confirmation, hours before he had confirmation that Christ indeed had performed the word that he had spoken. Friend, all of that is speaking to us surely as an example of what true faith is and how it acts. It should lay, lay us low. Friend, those who are endowed with this true faith are willing to be humbled under Christ's rebuke, under his word and willing to receive correction. It is a faith that is also persistent. Friend, the psalmist in Psalm 40, Psalms 42 and 43 gives a wonderful example of that. Even the apparent frowning countenance of God in his providences and insensible desertions These things will not extinguish that work of grace that has been wrought by the Spirit of God. No, the faith remains. And then you notice that, friend, true saving faith is is that which acts first and then afterward receives confirmation. That's the order. He goes first, he leaves the place, not despairing, but believing upon the word of Christ, and then afterward receives confirmation. And friend, that order is so significant to our text. It's so significant to our text, and it's also so significant to Christian experience. The incredulous crave a sign first. They crave some kind of experience first before they act faith. But the order is always the order in our text. Friend, you and I are to go away believing the word of Christ and waiting for him to demonstrate his faithfulness. To illustrate that point, friend, none of the elect in the scriptures knew that they were elect before they believed. Not one. And so it is always with saving faith the same. Friend, all are to act faith upon the word of Christ and to wait upon him. And so, as we leave this text this evening, a question of examination that's quite basic is, have, have we cast ourselves upon his word? Or does this centurion who likely knew so very little, does he put us to shame? Have we acted faith upon his word? You know, so many, friend, will look at so many self-confirmations, so many things from themselves to see, well, well, can I go to Christ if I have this, that, and the third characteristic in my life? That's not the order at all. You see, friend, as it comes to the work of grace, the soul is to cast itself first upon Christ and his offers in the gospel. To leave self. That's the whole point of faith. It leaves self and lays hold of Christ. 
And then after doing so, the confirmations of that work of grace come. But it's always and only in that order. Always and only in that order. And so have you cast yourself upon that word? But for our comfort, beloved, how sweet then should we see Christ's words, even his rebukes. In this text, the man is particularly and publicly rebuked by Christ. But it was always Christ's intention to work wonderfully for him. Friend, how willing should we be to be corrected by Christ and even to sit under a frowning countenance, knowing that it's Christ's countenance, a Christ who is willing, more gracious and more merciful than you and I could ever know. The man may have been rebuked in one moment, but in the next, not only did he have his son restored by Christ, but he was made heir to eternal life. Even Christ's rebukes are sweet. And so the call from this text, friend, is so very straightforward. It is simply cast yourself upon his word. Friends, spurn that kind of sentiment in ourselves that would in any way heap contempt upon the word or person of Christ. We're not to be Nazarenes. And also, friend, Move yourself away from that kind of faith as you see in the Galileans where they're always looking for a confirmation before they cast themselves upon the word of Christ and instead repose upon his word. And then you'll find indeed, friend, that he is faithful. And that word is a sure ground for our hope. Amen.